Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12 is where we'll be centering and focusing our attention uh, for this period of our worship where we open the Bible and study from God's Word. So good to see you this morning. Uh, we have a great number and a number of our people who have uh, not been able to get out for quite some time, and we are so happy to see you. Uh, special spots that are filled here uh, that have not been filled for some time. We're just so glad uh, to see uh, maybe a little bit of sense of relief as a lot of people are getting vaccinated and uh, people able to be with us that we haven't seen in some time. So welcome and we're glad to have you back. Uh, for those who are joining us in other formats online or, or perhaps listening after the fact, we want to welcome you and thank you for your attention and for being here with us as we try to worship God this morning. If a man dies... Shall he live again? That was Job's question in Job 14 and verse 14. It is a question that has haunted man from the dawn of time. Since the introduction of death into the world, man has wrestled with it. Man has lived in slavery from the fear of it. Man has sought ways to escape death. And the idea of resurrection or new life seems almost too good to be true. In fact, Job felt it was too good to be true. As he wrestled with it, he said, surely I would wait for a new life like that. And yet he felt that there was no grounds for such hope. And I think that we have the same problem. Even when we read promises of resurrection, sometimes they're hard to believe. They seem too good to be true. So we deal with death in different ways. Instead of just looking it straight on, when we're young, we ignore it. And then as we age a little bit, we see more and more people, especially those who are important to us, succumb to death, sometimes gradually, sometimes in violent or horrible ways. And then if we are blessed to live long enough, we begin to face death and think about its prospect for ourselves personally. And death becomes the rubber meets road moment of our faith. Do you really believe in Jesus? You know, you can sing the songs in church and you can read the Bible, but when you face your own mortality, the question becomes a lot more real. But sometimes it seems to me that it is the details about the concept of resurrection that make it feel impossible. So if there's going to be a resurrection, what's that going to look like? How is God going to restore people to their bodies? Especially, what about decay? What about people whose horrible things happen to their bodies? What's God going to do about that? And if there is a resurrection, what's that going to look like? Are are we going to be hungry? Are we going to be sleepy? Are we going to be tempted? And you know, we have so many questions about what that would look like that the silence from the Bible about that is deafening. And it begins to say, well, maybe this is just all kind of a fairy tale. With those thoughts in mind, I think we can sympathize a little bit with the group that we're going to study about this morning in Mark chapter 12. They are a group known as the Sadducees. And Jesus tangles with them over the issue of resurrection. And what I want to do this morning is spend our time focusing on Jesus' response to them about resurrection in Mark chapter 12. So the Sadducees were a group of people who think about death like we do. That is, they struggle with the idea that maybe this is just a baseless hope. And they have come out to say, no, we don't believe that there is a resurrection at all. And their issue seems to be twofold. First of all, they don't believe that scripture supports the idea of a resurrection, the Old Testament scripture. And second, 
they believe that because the details of the resurrection are not specific enough, it must not be true. And Jesus is going to respond to both of those problems in this section. So what I want to do is study this passage because we are still haunted by the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? I want us to hear and learn from how Jesus teaches us to think about resurrection. So in Mark chapter 12, in this section, we are in the lead up to Jesus' crucifixion. And it is this very interesting time where all the groups seem to bring their toughest questions to Jesus and have them have him try to answer them. He has just dispatched the Pharisees and Herodians who had asked him about taxes. And in Mark chapter 12 and verse 18, this is our text for this morning. It says, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So Mark points out in verse 18 here that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And so their question is going to come from the perspective of someone who is skeptical about the whole idea. So if I can think of a scenario that Jesus can explain, then of course the resurrection must not be true. That's the Sadducees' logic. I want to take a moment and uh, talk about the Sadducees. Most Jews in the time of Jesus believed that there would be a resurrection when the Messiah came, a general resurrection, particularly of the Jewish people. But the Sadducees are unique in that they don't believe in a resurrection. We know just a little bit about the Sadducees from history, not very much actually. This is Acts 23. It says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. We also have these references couple of them from Josephus. This is in Josephus' Antiquities. But the doctrine of the Sadducees, he says, is this, that souls die with the bodies, nor do they regard their observation of anything besides what the law enjoins them, for they think it an instance of virtue to dispute with those teachers of philosophy whom they frequent. Isn't that a polite way of saying they like to argue? Okay? They think it's a, a virtue to dispute. But the important parts here are they believe that souls die with the bodies, so death means the end. And they also believe nothing besides what the law enjoins them, which most have taken to mean that they only held the first five books of the law to be what they would follow. So maybe their objection to resurrection comes from the fact that in those first five books, there's nothing there that they see that points to a resurrection. Uh, this is Josephus in his wars. They also take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades, Hades being the realm of the dead. So the essence is that the Sadducees just generally deny supernatural stuff. They say, God, yes, but in terms of angels and spirits and resurrections and eternal life, no. Probably because they're sticking to those first five books of the law. Josephus also points out that they like to argue, which we'll find from our text. They brought Jesus' question so that they can all argue about it. Now, I don't want to show you that yet, so we'll go to here. Okay, so the Jewish custom, as he says, as they say in this circumstance that they brought to Jesus, is that if a man dies, 
they didn't want that man and his line, particularly the tribe he was in, to end because he didn't have any children. So his brother would then take the widow and try to raise up offspring for his brother and they would carry on his name. And so they go through this elaborate scenario. It's not clear if it really happened, if they just heard about it or if they made it up for the argument. But seven brothers all are married to this one woman. None of them have children and they all die. So verse 23 In the resurrection, put that in quotes because they're saying the resurrection. When they rise again, like you all say, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. So their question is, you know, in the resurrection, we're still going to be all about monogamy, right? You only have one wife. She can only have one husband. Who's it going to be? Number one, number seven, number four. And they really think they've got him on this. But the logic is, please hear it. This is not about marriage. This is a question about the resurrection. If we can't explain the details or if Jesus, if you can't explain them to us, then what you're teaching must not be true. So verse 24, Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus says you are wrong for two very specific reasons. That is, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then he goes on to tell them what they don't know. So I want to start by saying, Jesus says that resurrection rests on the power of God. Verse 25, it says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he starts with the power of God. And he starts by saying, when they rise, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. That is, this state of marriage has to do with the way we live now and the way we understand things now, but that's not the way it's going to be in the next age or in the resurrection. It's not a part of that existence at all. And he says they are like angels in heaven. Now that's ironic because Sadducees don't believe in angels like we already saw in Acts 23. But they at least knew what angels were And they knew about the biblical descriptions of angels and what other Jews believed about angels. And one of the foremost things about angels, if you study them, and I know John is leading a class on this, but I'm not in that class. I don't know what all he said. One of the foremost things about angels is they they are not sexual beings. Angels are referred to by male pronouns when they're described in Scripture, but it's not as if, you know, Michael the angel has a wife. They're not sexual beings, and it's improper to think of them that way because that's not the way their existence is. And Jesus says, that's the way you will be in the resurrection. Luke describes it in a slightly different way. This is Luke 20 and verse 34. He says, this is Jesus speaking, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. There's a lot more words than in Mark, as you can see. But the stress here is on the idea they cannot die anymore. So things have completely changed because in the resurrection there's no more death. So when they are talking about marrying one man and then the next man and then the next man, what they are talking about, the whole system, is about perpetuating the line of the dead. If a man dies, his line shouldn't die with him. And so we want to continue the line of that man. But none of that matters if you can't die anymore. 
None of that whole idea of how are we going to escape our own mortality? How is our family going to continue? Your family will continue because you're going to continue. You can't die anymore. So instead, he says, you're equal to angels and sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So there is a difference in the way you are in that next life. I don't know about you, but I find that little glimpse of what Jesus says about that to be tantalizing. It's right there to say, wow, there's a totally new kind of existence that is to come that's hard for me to explain and hard for me to understand. I have never lived that way. No one has ever compared me to an angel. If they have, they were kind of being facetious. And I am certainly not uh, someone who cannot die anymore. So to be in that existence is, is beyond what we experience now. But the idea that we have a hard time imagining it doesn't mean it can't be true. Now, you may be wondering, what does that all have to do with the power of God? That resurrection rests on the power of God, or Jesus says you don't know the power of God. Well, Paul says this in Acts 26 and verse 8. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why would it be that we could believe in a God who is all-powerful, God Almighty, and yet there is a limit on his power? You know, he is powerful up to the point where people die, and after that, eh. That is what the Sadducees believe, that there is a limit to the power of God. And frankly, I think we often struggle with that same limit. We will talk about people as if, you know, someone has a sickness and they are sick, but they're not dead. We will pray for them and we will hold out hope. But when they die, we just sort of say, well, that's it. No one is praying or expecting that people will come back from the dead. And it seems to me that that might bleed over. I'm not saying we should pray for the dead. I'm saying that might bleed over into us thinking maybe God can't. Maybe that is just it. It's just so final. Jesus is telling us that our hesitancy to believe in the resurrection is a lack of faith in the power of God. Specifically this. Do we believe that God has the power to create something? A state that is beyond our imagination. That we can't make sense of. The, the Sadducees think that the resurrection can't be real. If I can think of a circumstance, you can't explain in it. But why wouldn't God be greater than our imagination? Why should our understanding limit God? It's interesting to me. This actually seems in my reading to happen to some Christians a little bit later. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body? Do they come? Do you hear that? Paul, I need more information. I can't believe it. And in fact, people in 1 Corinthians 15 are saying the resurrection, there is no resurrection. And one of the reasons they seem to be giving is they don't know how or they don't know with what kind of body. And Paul does some explaining of that. But there's some of that even after Paul's explanation that will leave you scratching your head. I'm not exactly sure. But why would it be that just because we don't understand how it works... It can't be so. It must not be real because I don't explain it well. You see, instead of thinking that way, we need to see, and Jesus encourages us to see, that resurrection is about God's power. It's not about our finite understandings. If some don't understand what kind of body we're going to have, that doesn't mean the resurrection isn't true. If we don't know exactly how marriage works, that doesn't mean it can't be true. And you can add all kinds of questions to that list. I've got some questions, don't you? What's it going to look like? 
in the resurrection? What are our bodies going to be like? Are we going to need to eat? Are we going to be able to hang out with people? Are we going to be able to have a really good conversation? Will there be sports? I don't know. I like sports. In fact, the things that I like, the things that I enjoy, is that what joy is like in the resurrection? I don't know. I wish I knew, but I don't. Like the Sadducees, we have imaginations that only come to a limit. And we have to be able to accept that things could be real without our being able to imagine them accurately. Remember this. God is exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And if that is the case, then his power is far greater than our imagination. So don't limit God by what you can think of. Now, I wish we had a more detailed map. I really do. Of the resurrection and the next age and what that's going to look like. What will be, where we'll be, what we'll be doing, who will be there, how and when everything is going to happen. Uh, I wish that God had revealed that in a different way than he did. But Jesus tells us, just trust in the power of God and you'll be fine. Resurrection rests on God's power, not on your imagination. Let's get back to our text here in Mark chapter 12. So now Jesus is going to make the case about resurrection from the scriptures themselves that resurrection rests on scripture. It's one thing to say God can do something, right? It's another thing to say that God will do it or that God has committed himself to do it, that God said it's going to happen. And that's where Jesus is going to go next. Now, as as I thought about this and kind of prepared for this, I tried to ask the question of myself. If I were in Jesus' shoes and Sadducees came to me during this time before the revelation of the New Testament and they asked, Jacob, tell us where you would get the resurrection from Scripture. Well, how would I answer that? I mean, people ask me questions all the time. We're going to do a Q&A next week. You know, I get questions. So I started thinking about it. I, I thought, well, you know, probably I would go to some of those psalms. There are some psalms. I'll show you one in a minute that, that kind of hint at a future state. And there are a couple of prophecies you can get that kind of have some, some resurrection language in them. And then I would say, well, you know, you got those passages, but you also have a big inference you have to read. And that is that when God has all these promises about justice and about, you know, redeeming his people and saving them and bringing them into what he wants to do with them in the messianic age, that there's got to be something more. But that would be an inference. But, you know, in all that answer, what what I decided this week is I would never, ever, ever go to Exodus. And where does Jesus go? He goes to Exodus. Now, part of that may be because the Sadducees only accept those first five books of the Bible. That may be part of it. But whatever the reason, I wouldn't go there. But, you know, Jesus does that sometimes. It's kind of like Jesus uh, answering all the temptations of Satan only using Deuteronomy, which is sort of like, you know what? I can refute you with one hand tied behind my back. It's not a problem for Jesus. And so Jesus is going to say, oh, you want something from the first five books? Okay, Well, let's go to Exodus then and talk about it. So here is what Jesus says. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 of Mark 12. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So he says, hey, check out that burning bush passage where God appears to Moses to send him to Pharaoh. Now, every Jew 
Every Jew, every single one knew this passage. And yet Jesus says, did you notice? Have you not read? Ooh, I think that would sting a little bit. Of course they had read, but had they read? Had they gotten it? And he takes this statement. He cites it here at the end of verse 26. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he says, when you read that, I am their God. It's more than just a statement of fact. Hey, that's who I am. I'm their God. He is not saying, I'm the God who used to be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's God. Instead, he says, I am even still their God. Even now, though they have died physically, I am their God. He is not the God of dead people, Jesus says. He is the God of people who are still living. Jesus does this a lot. He speaks of Abraham as still living several times. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He says, many will sit down at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. He says, Abraham's bosom is the place where Lazarus dies and goes. Abraham still living is a part of the way Jesus thinks. And Jesus' belief about that, although I think he had more than just belief, but Jesus' belief about that is justified by Exodus. He says, look at that passage and you'll see that people are still living even though their bodies have died. So what is he saying? He's saying that death is not the end of existence. You may die physically and still live. He is saying death is not the end of our relationship with God. You may die and yet still God be your God and you still be living. He is saying that God's plan for these people has not ended just because they are physically dead. And he is saying that there is more to come for them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am their God. So God will not let humans' verdicts about these men. God will not let evil and injustice and them dying in faith before they receive the promises that were made to them, think of Abraham, will not let that prevent them from realizing his blessing. So from that foundation, the idea that these men are still living and awaiting God's fulfillment of all that he has promised, then you start to get some other places in the Old Testament. And you start to get a little bit of momentum. Psalm 73, 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. The afterward there is the fascinating part. What comes next? Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Daniel 12, 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Passages that, that do specifically say there will be resurrection. People who are now physically dead will live again physically. And with more and more injustice in the period between the Testaments, that cry goes louder and louder and then Jesus comes and provides the focal point of all of this history that says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so these old promises, it started with Moses and God talking with Moses. And then the slow building of the idea that God is going to do something even greater than we have ever imagined. Then becomes highlighted in one man, crystallized in one man. The one man who ever went to the grave and came back to tell the tale. When we die, God is still our God. When we die, we are still living. Jesus is still our hope.
But to say that scripture doesn't address it, to say that there's nothing in the book that would justify belief in resurrection, Jesus won't have that. He says, no, you are greatly mistaken. You are seriously wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I have heard this passage used to justify really intense scrutiny of scripture. That Jesus is arguing here basically from a verb tense. I am their God versus I was their God. And I think that's true. I think it is important for us to have scrutiny of scripture because this is God's will. This is how we will understand and glean God's truth from the scripture. Only if we're paying attention. That's the way Jesus thinks, right? You need to see what God is trying to say, even if it's not just on the surface. But I also think that Jesus is teaching us here to to read the scripture imaginatively. Because no matter how long you look at Exodus 3, you don't get resurrection there. I'm the God of the living. I am their God. But that doesn't say that the dead will rise again. No, that's something that we have to then think forward about and say, well, what would it mean if God still has servants and people that he is connected with even through death? And what would that mean? And it would lead us toward maybe there's more to these promises, like afterward you will receive me to glory, more to these promises about the dead living. And suddenly we sort of roll those things all together and we say, that's what God was saying even back then. So yes, we read scripture carefully, but we also read scripture with an open-hearted view of the power of God. Look at what God could do. And maybe God is telling us more than we might have seen in scripture. So resurrection rests on God's power. That is to say, what can God do? And it rests on scripture, which is to say, what has God said we will do? And Jesus says, resurrection checks both those boxes. Does that mean that we don't have questions. Of course we have questions. Does that mean we have full understanding? No. But it means that we are able to accept it by faith solely based on what we know about God's power and what we know about God's character. We can face the greatest fear that we all have. We know God will do what he said and we know God is capable of doing even more than we can imagine. Jesus is able to entrust his soul to a faithful creator and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was able to serve God even through death. And he is, and he is, our, he is, our, he is our example. So here is what I want to say. We begin with a question. If a man dies, shall he live again? And the answer is, according to Jesus, yes, we will live again. But it raises another question for you and me. Which is, are we ready for that? Are we prepared for our own death? And that's a question I want each of us to sit with for a few minutes today. To just chew on the fact that if I were to die, what does God think of my service to him and the life I have lived? Am I living in faith and hope in a resurrection? Or for me, is this life all there is? Am I prepared to meet my God? And if you're here this morning and you know that something is not right between you and God, as our brother Drew urged us to make our hearts clean, you can have the forgiveness that God offers through his son by being baptized into Christ, 
or by confessing that sin and help, having us to help you and pray with you to help you to overcome that sin. But don't leave unprepared to do the things that Jesus has said are going to happen when this life is over. Do you need to respond to the invitation? Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.